0: This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's patreo dot com
1: slash trekfm.
2: This is Phyllis Strong, writer-producer on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Warp 5 on Trek FM.
0: Prepare for of Course laid in, sir. Request permission to get underway. Let's go. Welcome, Boomers, to another episode of Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated enterprise show. I'm your host, Floyd Dorsey, and I'm joined on this away mission by my regular guest, and we'll just go ahead and call him co-host, Brandon Shea-Mutala. Brandon, how's it going?
3: I am doing pretty darn good right now. How are you doing, Floyd? Very good. Very good.
0: So, Boomers, typically we broadcast our transmission from the friendly confines of the NX-01. However, tonight is special because Brandon Shea and I have chosen to conduct, have been chosen to conduct a diplomatic meeting with a Zindi. So yeah, that's like, like ominous music sometimes, but really they're our (laughs) friends now, right? After, after, after we figured it all out, we, you know, they're our friends. So instead of just speaking to you from aboard the NX-01, as we usually do, we're actually broadcasting our signal from the top secret Zindi council chambers. And I've got to tell you, Brandon, that is one of the biggest aquariums I've ever seen. What do, you, what do you think about that?
3: That is amazing. I could totally go for a swim in that. So you don't think that those aquatics would mind, do you?
0: Um, they probably would. They probably also don't like that we were tapping on the glass earlier, you know, but anyway. <laughs> but seriously, though, folks, we actually have a great guest on with us tonight we're going to be joined by Tucker Smallwood. He's known by Enterprise fans as the Zindi primate counselor. Uh, Tucker has appeared on many popular TV sh- shows and movies, and we're very happy to get to talk with him tonight.
3: Yeah, it's it. We just you know we've already recorded the interview, and it's pretty special. And we learned a lot of really cool things about his career and and his history in the military and whatnot. And it was it was a pretty special an amazing interview. And I'm, I'm a little flabbergasted still. Like it was, it was pretty awesome. So. Yep.
0: Yeah, they, so basically that it was, it was awesome.
3: That's, that's all yeah. I can say
0: that I, that he got into some stories like on that. I didn't really even know about, you know, and I, I get, I'm not sure if anyone really knew about it. Uh, but, um, it really wants me to makes me want to go read his book. And, uh, because that it got really that was really deep. And I really, really appreciate Tucker for sharing that with us.
3: Normally when we transition into the interview, we play a transporter sound or something like that. But uh, Tucker will explain in the interview that he has gotten into singing blues music. So we're actually going to transition with some of his singing that you can actually find on YouTube. Um, so are you ready? To, should we just jump right into the interview here, Floyd?
0: Sure, let's just go ahead and do it.
3: Okay, so this track that you're about to hear is called Sweet Home Chicago.
1: California To my sweet home Chicago Oh, Baby don't you Wanna go Oh Baby don't you Wanna go Back to the land Of California To my sweet home Chicago Two, two and two is four I'm heavy loaded, baby, I'm booked I gotta go crying to Don't you wanna go Back to the land, California To my sweet home, Chicago Now two and two is four Four and two is six Keep mucking around here, friend, boy. You're going to get your business all in a chip. Baby, honey, don't you want to go back to the land of California to my sweet home, Chicago?
0: And joining Brandon and I here in the Zindi Council Chambers is accomplished actor and singer Tucker Smallwood. Welcome to Wart Five, Tucker.
2: Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you both.
0: So Tucker, let's let's just go ahead and just go back to the beginning here. Let's 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 just start from the beginning. Oh,
2: the Benny. You oh, got yeah. a Wayback back machine there? Yeah, we're
0: gonna we're well we'll we'll just we'll look through the window then at the back. And how did you get your start in Hollywood?
2: I, I graduated from college in uh, 1966 with a degree in speech and TV production and began directing for the NBC affiliate in Baltimore. And um, about four months, four or five months later, I received my draft notice. It, it wasn't expected to um, you know, produce anything significant because uh, I had played football for Maryland and had uh, incurred a, a knee injury. And I wasn't going to play pro football, so no surgery was... Um, scheduled. But um, when I went in for my induction physical, the the doctor said, you know, your knee clicks every time you flex it. And I said, yeah, I know. He said, well, but you can walk, can't you? And I said, well, of course I can't. I walked in here. Well, fine. You let us know if you have any problems. And the next thing I knew, my hand was up and I was being sworn into the uh, armed forces of the United States. Uh, I was uh, somewhat of a disciplinary problem, but um, I was rather good in the woods. And um, I enjoyed the the competitive aspect of it, and um, I fell in love with soldiering, and I I wanted to be as qualified a warrior as I could be, so I got a lot of special training. I served as a military advisor in South Vietnam, and I was pretty badly wounded, and I spent about four or five months in the hospital with multiple surgeries, and they didn't expect me to live very long, and so I had... I spent a lot of time laying in a bed thinking, well, what do we do with what we have left? And um, just before leaving for Vietnam, I had visited a girlfriend in New York, and she'd take me to see a play. The play was Big Time Buck White, and it starred Dick Anthony Williams. It was a very, very exciting experience. It was, it was, it was immediate, and it was visceral, and it was passionate. And uh, I was very moved by it. And I remembered that experience, and I said, well, you know, you, you, you know, good technical stuff, but you don't really know how to talk to an actor. So why don't we study the process and see if we can become a better director? And so I applied uh, to, uh, for an MFA at UCLA. I flew out and met with um, the head of the program. And then I went to New York and I met with Sanford Meisner at the Neighborhood Playhouse, a rather legendary leg of the triumvirate of Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, and, um, Sanford Meisner, who taught the technique or method of Stanislavski and um, it was very good therapy for me and um, I, I, I literally fell in love with it. I, it opened me up in a human way. Um, I had been pretty closed off emotionally for some time and um, it gave me access to my, my feelings, my passions and I, I never wanted to surrender that. So uh, I began studying. I um had offers. I began working almost immediately. In the second year, Jeff Goldblum and I got kicked out. Within a week of each other, he had gotten a play and I had gotten a soap opera and they wouldn't allow us to work and go to school. And so that was my beginning. And one thing led to another and led to another. It just continued to unfold. That was in the fall of 71 when I began.
3: And what was that first gig that you got?
2: The first gig? Well, the, the first professional gig. Hmm. Let's see. What was the first gig? I was doing stuff even while I was in school, but quietly. Uh, I went to the uh, to to um, Minneapolis at the Walker Art Center. Berta Walker was a producing this production of a children's play, The Hunting of the Snark, and I went and performed that. Uh, I remember I remember how very cold it was, and and them having tunnels underneath the streets to cross. And I said, Yeah, that's a good idea. If I lived here, I wouldn't come up until spring. So I can't imagine what life is like outside for you.
3: It could be pretty nasty. Floyd and I, I, every time it gets really cold here, I actually text Floyd what the temperature is, and and I had a couple of times this winter here where it hit down to minus forty eight Fahrenheit with the wind
2: chill. Mm-hmm. I, I can remember being in in Ohio in college and inhaling, and my nose, my nostrils froze together, and I said, "Okay, well, this is not acceptable. I don't want to be anywhere where it's this cold." And I have have tried to avoid it ever since. I could not have survived in, in Korea, I, I Vietnam. I love my work and I love my people, but it was hot to to do what those men in Korea did or in, during World War II and Bastogne and, and the battles and the, and the brutal European winters. That, that's a man. That's a man. When your plasma freezes and your weapons freeze, <laughs> your, your butt is going to be next. Well,
0: yeah, I can't relate to the cold myself. I live in Dallas, so when Brandon says that it's negative something, I'm like, it's 72 here, so I don't really know what you're talking about. <laughs>
3: One of the fan-favorite roles that you've had as a guest spot on a show was the episode Home on the X-Files. Now, this episode was the first X-Files episode to have a viewer discretion warning at the start. When you were filming this, did you realize how popular this episode would become? And do you listen to Johnny Mathis?
2: When I was filming it, I was aware of how notorious it might become. Um... Chris Carter has described it as the single most um, controversial episode in the series. And when it aired, there was such a response at the switchboards that Fox vowed never to air it again. It was controversial without question. Uh, However, they began selling it the next week and then they created FX, which was like a triple A farm club. And uh, they began airing it on, on FX, and each year there was a, a marathon of X Files, and it was always the most requested episode because it was so difficult to get. Um, I can remember going to pick up a pizza when I uh, received the script, and I was sitting there as I was waiting for my pizza, and the hostess came over and asked me, Are you okay? Because um, apparently I was sitting there reading, and I was moaning out loud Oh God, oh no. Oh goodness, uh, it, it was a pretty a, a, a pretty amazing episode. It was written by Glenn Morgan and Jim Wong. These are two men I think of as my godfathers. They um, have been very, very generous and kind to me over the years and um, we met when I was involved with their series, Space Above and Beyond. And uh, they have very, very specific and um, eccentric um, preferences. Uh, so that's the answer to your first question. And the second is, I don't uh, I don't believe I own any of his records. I have quite a few LPs. I've got Frank and I've got Nat King Cole, but I don't think I have any Johnny Mathis, but I certainly enjoy his voice.
3: Because that's the song that they played in that one, Wonderful, Wonderful.
2: That's true, and people remember that. That's part of the surreal juxtaposition. Jim and Glenn always make very, very specific and provocative musical choices. In their scripts
0: well, I can tell you from a personal personal standpoint on that I watched that in first run as a as a younger kid like i was I was probably uh I was a teenager when I saw that that was creepy that whole episode was so creepy, but you played like your your part in that you played that so deadpan because I mean they were all they were it was kind of a joke that they had that you were Andy Taylor. You know, and that they, they were saying that they were basically in Mayberry, you know, and just the way you delivered your lines on that, I, it was just it, it was so funny. I, I, th- I thought it was so funny. And it, and it starts off like that, but then it ends up being one of the creepiest episodes I've ever seen. <laughs> Tucker, staying in the sci-fi genre here, how similar or different were your experiences working on the X-Files versus working on Millennium?
2: Well, they were both shot in Vancouver. Uh, again, the script was written by Jim and Glenn. Uh, it's, it starred uh, Kristen, um, who had become a good friend from our work together on the space above and beyond. Uh, the weather is beautiful there. Uh, every I've been to Vancouver probably four or five times, and it's it's just such a special city. Different, I don't know, it's a different character, different reality, a different world, but Always comfortable and um, always surrounded by very affirming people.
0: Uh, we have a listener, uh, Richard Marquez. He's also a, a host here on Trek FM, and he was a fan of your time on Space Above and Beyond. And he wanted me to ask for your character as Commodore Ross, did you emulate any characteristics of a former commander that you knew from when you served?
2: No. I had relatively few relationships with senior officers. Um, uh, we were out there in the bush by ourselves, uh, a five-man team. And I, I when I got there, um, the commander had only arrived two weeks before. And that night, he was hit in the shoulder. And two weeks later, he was shot through the buttocks. And I became commander. Um, we, we had a pretty independent operation. The The joy of that character and that that relationship was that I was playing myself 25 years after Vietnam. The values, the qualities, the concerns that I had as a commander in Vietnam were the same things I brought to Commodore Russ. So I was essentially playing myself, but entirely grown up.
0: All right. So Richard's going to love that answer. Because not you weren't just inspired by someone. You were actually just playing yourself. So I know he's going to love that answer.
3: I personally loved Space of and Beyond. I, was, I watched it during its initial run uh, because I was huge fl- fans of Glenn Morgan and James Wong from their work on, on The X-Files. And uh, so when that show was airing, I was... I was totally hooked and was so disappointed when the show got cancelled at the end. I'm happy that they gave it kind of a nice finale because a lot of shows didn't have that at that time if they only went one season. But uh, that was some excellent work and there were some really, really outstanding episodes in that show.
2: Yes, it's 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 uh, without question my, my favourite work on television as an actor. Um, it, it, it was very personal. It was a wonderful, nurturing relationship. And what was most of what was most compelling to me was the reaction of the veteran and, and the um, active service community. I in those days I you know they had airports that had recruiting stations in the airports and I traveled a great deal and I'd walk through the airport and and, and people would come running out of those offices who recognized me and tell me I watch that show every week. I make sure my son watches that show. Uh it was very it was very satisfying to to have the approval of the people that we were portraying i wanted to do it right, obviously. Uh, I have relationships, and um, i, I, I um, it, it's very important to me how we are depicted in fiction. Uh, I've turned down a great deal of work over the years that um, involved a character that I wasn't comfortable with, his values or, the, or his conduct.
3: So I have a question that kind of expands on that. Have you seen the newest Star Trek movie, Star Trek Beyond?
2: You know... I've kind of lost track. I was watching some previews from something on Trek, and I don't know if it's the next movie coming out or one of them that I missed. I I don't know that I've seen all of them. I've seen a, a great number of them, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm not a slavish fan. Uh, I, you know, I have a lot of interest, and there are a lot of movies these days. And the comic book genre is not at the top of my list. Uh, the movies that I gravitate to are generally smaller movies, personal movies that aren't technology driven they're 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 driven by uh, human interaction okay
3: so the reason why i'm asking this question if you'd seen the new one is one of the frustrating plot lines that i found in star trek beyond was that the main antagonist in it was a person who had been in the military and after the war was over, he got really frustrated with the with the position that they put him in as just a captain of an exploration ship, and he didn't know how to make that transition. So he's now taking revenge on Starfleet because he felt like he was kind of thrown out to the wind after he wasn't needed as a military officer anymore. And to me, I kind of find that as a frustrating trope with, with military characters nowadays. And I'm just wondering, how do you feel about that betrayal?
2: Well, for quite a... For well, quite a few years, the, the trope of the crazed Vietnam vet was very, very popular. As I said, I've turned down a great deal of work over the years. Uh, it's it's lazy writing to me, but it would seem that the people that created this uh, you know, chose a theme that seems to resonate, not because it's necessarily true, because, but because it's been recreated so many times over the years, in the past, say, 30, 40 years. Of uh, disgruntled former prior service acting out in a malevolent way, and you know I guess it's it, it, people can buy into that, uh, and it, and perhaps it's more dynamic than you know the theme of yes I served and yes I killed and everything's fine and you know I'm going on going on with my life. Uh, you have to start with something.
3: Tucker, why don't you tell us about some of the work that you've done to help veterans, and then your book, The Return to Eden.
2: Well, I became engaged in veterans' advocacy um, in the 70s. Um, I, was, um, I was not particularly political. I've never been much of a joiner. And um, I came to California in the, the late 70s and became involved with the program that was funded by um, the Fisher family. These are the people that have created Fisher Homes and have been very benevolent. Uh, supporters for decades. And uh, we would go into the uh, hospital ward uh, here, the lock wards and the detox wards out here in LA, and um, with a tape recorder and scripts from shows like Barney Miller and Taxi. And um, we'd cast the patients and then we'd read the scripts and we'd record them and then we'd play them back. And uh, it was very satisfying. Uh, I enjoyed spending time with these guys. Uh, They they related to me because they knew I had been where many of them had been. And um, it, was, it, it was very affirming. Now, this was in the late 70s, as I said. It was about that time that my wheels began to come off. And um, while I had done very, very well professionally, financially, relationship-wise, um, for almost 10 years, I was slowly beginning to descend into depression. And it wasn't until 1988 that uh, I was encouraged to, to speak with someone, and I found a, a therapist and I got better. But um, at that time, you know, PTSD was not even the diagnosis. We had, for generations, had different terms to describe issues with soldiers, soldiers' heart, you know, combat fatigue, uh, shell shock. Um, but you know, by and large, they were describing the the same dynamic of the dislocation of being in the most hellish circumstances you can imagine, and then leaving them and coming back and trying to find normalcy when we've been through something that is the antithesis of normalcy. Um, it's very hard to reconcile, and um some of us drive off the road in our process of trying to reconcile those two conflicting things. The primary aspect of my, my problems were, was um, survivor guilt. Uh, a lot of people that I respected and cared for didn't come home. And um, I had been, as I said, pretty badly wounded. I, I bled out and was pronounced dead. And um, it was a miracle that they brought me back. And it was a miracle that I healed as well as I did but that was all physical. My my mind was really having problems with justifying still being here and having such success in my life when people were underground. And uh, so I became very self-destructive and set out to destroy the success that I had created and achieved. And I, I, I lived like that for about eight years. And when I did get help and I cleaned up my life and my mind, um, and moved to California in 1991. I, I committed myself to being involved in whatever way I could as an advocate for veterans. Um, a lot of people today exist with post-traumatic stress disorder, and um, we have different ways of treating them. Um, I had separately gone to the dedication of the Wall in Washington and Arlington in uh, 2000 and uh, 1984. And in 1985, there was the first parade in America for to welcome home Vietnam veterans, and I participated in that. And I met men with whom I had a great deal in common, and we became good friends and um, close relationships, and we, we did work together on behalf of our city and our fellow veterans. And I've remained active uh, as a Vietnam veteran of America. Our, our pledge when we formed was never again will a generation of veterans abandon the next one. We had not been welcomed home by America or by the other veteran service organizations. Um, so out of that, IAVA now exists, the, uh, the, 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 the group that um, advocates for veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, we have been supportive of them, and they have learned from the um, rocky roads that we helped to pave. But the dynamic in America is very different today than it was in the 70s we um we have bent over backwards to um, make sure that we acknowledge these people to let them know that their contributions and their sacrifices are appreciated by us uh, whether we America learned not to blame the veteran for the war and that's a very important distinction
3: And the book that you wrote the return to Eden tell us a bit about that
2: well 2004 uh, was a difficult year i was I was in England at a a science fiction convention, um, perhaps Blackpool. I'm not certain of which what it was. I've been over a number of times. And I called home just to say hello, and I discovered that my mother had had a fall. I returned home. She she did not recover well. And uh, later that year, I lost her. And um, that was a very difficult passage for me. And I realized that I had a lot of unresolved grief within me and I I made a, a very quick decision within a week I had booked passage to return to Vietnam and I was going to arrive there on Christmas Eve and I'd be coming home about three or four days after Christmas and that that trip was a very healing experience for me it was it was a pilgrimage I went back to where my life had changed forever and on Christmas Day I went back to the place where my base, Camp again, out in the delta, along a canal. Uh, it, it, it's it's different. I wanted to go. I had thought about it for years. I wanted to go before there was a Seven Eleven on the corner. And um, <laughs> while there had been progress, I could still recognize it. There were there were power lines now, and I could see into the homes with color TV screens. And um, the children were still there, and the water buffalo was st- were still there, toiling in the fields. Um, now. Part of my therapy when I began and when I began to heal in 1988 was writing. My therapist said, "I want you to write down everything you can remember, everything, and I don't want you to judge it, don't censor it, just write it down." And I began writing these essays about events that I could recall, interactions that I could recall in combat. And over time, um, I realized my my gifts or skills or abilities were having the good fortune to live a very interesting life i've been all over the world i've interacted with all kinds of people and somewhat like zelig i um i have interacted with a number of people who will become very very famous it's just this a very curious synchronicity in my life and so um i continued to write these essays um i began i began uh, being involved with um spoken word here in los angeles and I didn't write poetry, but they were very generous, and and, um, uh, they allowed me to read my essays, and they were very supportive. So um, I continued to share these pieces, and after coming back, I realized I had uh, a book. I had um, begun sharing these because I I wanted to help families and veterans who were struggling with this condition. It's still not very well understood. There's a lot of confusion about it. There's a lot of misinformation about it. And I wanted to help add to the body of work of knowledge. I was served by reading books of other veterans. There were things that they would, insights they would share that had not occurred to me. And they were insights only these veterans were likely to perceive, to come up with, because we knew the truth. And uh, I wanted to share that body of work. So, uh, and we had also come into a time when self-publishing became a reality. the legitimate um, um, book um, companies were not going to be interested in me. I had no track record, and I wasn't looking to to become famous. I had achieved that 20-some years before. I wasn't looking to become wealthy. I had um, become comfortable economically. But I wanted to share my insights with others in hopes that something that I said might clarify something for them. So the book exists, I'm I'm, I'm happy to have written it, I'm proud of it, I've enjoyed sharing it over the years with people and I enjoy getting feedback from people who have sought it out and read it. Um, It's also an audio book. So um, it exists, I have probably two or three more books on my computer, I'm not driven to publish more. Facebook gives me an outlet for expressing myself. I have a website, uh, tuckersmallwood.com, where I've maintained a blog for over eight years. Um, so it, it is what it is. It is where it is. And that's uh, essentially the story. But the photo on the cover of the book is a photo I took outside of my base. And I, I noted it was Eden once again. Uh, no more bunkers, no more sandbags, no more barbed wire. It was beautiful again.
3: It's awesome.
0: Wow. So, Tucker, uh, bringing it back to Star Trek here, uh, on Enterprise, you played a Zindi primate that accompanied Degra at council meetings. So what were you told about your role before you began filming?
2: Remarkably little. In in general, in any Trek project, there's a Bible. Um, You know, if you want to find out what is so with... um, uh, but the Klingon, you know, there's a language, there's a culture, there are mores, there are traditions. None of that existed for the Cindy. And so the four of us, Randy olsby Scott McDonald, Rick Worthy, and I began to create our backstories. Uh, and we, uh, Trek is, is, Trek is religiously um, um, very specific and uh, very disciplined about Anyone changing anything. I mean, you don't change an uh to a the without getting permission from upstairs. But they gave us latitude. We had to make some things. We, we had to establish some things that we had a mutual agreement about. So um, whether or not the, the audience grasped the entirety of what we refer to, we had a common backstory, and that was useful to us as actors. Uh, it got to the point where uh, you you call me a primate. The reason that that exists is because I went to the writers and I said, "Look, you're, you're describing him as a humanoid. I, I would never describe myself in someone else's terms. I am a primate. Humanoid is 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 um, well, condescending. It's it's rather insulting." And and they changed it. Uh, Rick and I would go to um, to conventions and we'd sign photos, and the writers hadn't given us names. Uh, you know, there was Degra, and uh, there was um Declan, I believe. Um, but uh, Rick, the Yaboreal, and I, as the uh, primate, did not have a name. And so I, I said to Rick, look, from now on, I'll be Deepak and you can be Chopra. And so when we <laughs> go to conventions, that's how we sign our pictures. <laughs> oh, that's great. Now, of course, we have a name. we They don't know our name, but of course, we have names. We had parents. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's great! That's great. We actually had several listeners that wanted to know about your character's name, or um, did you come up with your own name? So, yeah, Greg, Greg, absolutely. Maloney. Okay, very good. Thank you. Um, the in the novelization of uh, the Expanse and the Zindi, uh, one of our listeners, Dan Lecky, said that your character was named Melora. Have you ever heard of that name, or?
2: It sounds like a woman, but I don't know, maybe in Zindi, and it's a, you know, an, an asexual name. I haven't read any of the novelizations.
0: Okay. Very good. very good. So your name was Deepak. That's right. Okay, it's on the record now. Tucker says, Tucker says that's how it goes. So I can, I can say that uh, just thinking back of the roles that you had played, you always played like a really uh, a strong character. Like you played like an admiral, a colonel, a general. You would be like a, like you were CIA director. You were a sheriff. You were like always in a role of authority. So a lot of times they actually mention that your character was the counselor for Degra. But like for me, you were Degra's boss. So how, how did, what do you think about that?
3: He even, uh, I'll just interrupt here. Uh, Tucker's even recently played God all oh, right.
2: Yeah. Uh, let's see, the, the the, first question is uh our our dynamic. Uh you know, the writers are the writers, they created our reality and I'd I'd um I'd I'd would I'd struggle to justify that perception. Uh I'm not gonna argue with it, but um Degra's character was much uh is it is Degra was that Brandy's character? Yes, yeah. I'm not sure of the names anymore. Okay. Was was much more fully drawn. And was much more heavily involved in the arc uh, during that season. So I would think at at the very least we were perhaps peers. Uh, but I don't think I had any authority over him. I, I didn't. I, I can't remember having thought about it. It never came up.
0: Well, I, I just say that because in my mind that's how I always see you. Like the characters that you play are you're always the boss. You know, and like whatever Tucker says, everybody does what Tucker says. You know, that's that's how I have seen you <laughs> as I've been growing up. So, you know, yes sir, Tucker, yes sir, you know.
2: That that's the good news and the bad news. Um the casting society um pretty much determines who we get to to be or who we don't. And for many years, while I worked a great deal. Um, it, it was very eclectic. My roles were very, very wide and broad uh, in, in terms of differences. Uh, but uh, And so I didn't get to play a lot of characters I wanted to play because though I was a certain age, I didn't look a certain age. And um, television and film are, are visual mediums. However, uh, as I became psychologically more healthy. Um, I sort of grew into myself and there was a sweet spot for, uh, for some years where I was, I, where I looked mature enough to be the person I was portraying. And so those were good, those were good times. Those were, that was a rich period of time where I got to do a number of, of wonderful projects, but my, the qualities that they identified, um, Yes, they they would generally place me in a position of authority. I was the one who was without doubt. I was certain. And that can be, that that serves the project, but it's not as interesting artistically. Um, Sometimes searching for truth or searching for for certainty is is, is, to an actor is an interesting part of the work. And I always know, generally, 10 seconds uh, of me on screen, and you know everything about me you need to know. I know what's going on, I'm in charge, we will get through this. So that's, you know, it's nice to have a niche, it's nice to have to have people think of you when a role comes along, but on the other hand, it can be limiting.
3: So your role as the Zindi involved some makeup and prosthetics. Can you tell us about uh, the process that they would use for that?
2: I would arrive on set two hours, uh, well, however many hours. There were, there were times when I got there when it was dark, and there were times when I went home and it was dark, but it was the next day um my 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 makeup and everyone's makeup well were, were rather different. Degras and I were similar, but um it took two hours to apply in the morning, and it took an hour and a half at night to get it, to take it off and it was a process, and it was not to me a pleasant process. Uh, I've been told over the years there are some actors who've taken to their prosthetics and their makeup, you know comfortably and others who have resisted and struggled uh it wasn't a fun process i like the people very very much they're very professional they're very diligent and there's there's no such thing as you know sort of or half-assed what i'm saying is uh, if if you feel oh i'm only on a quarter of a page here they're only going to see me from the side of the back no the director could decide let's shoot this full. so you went through the whole process every day those were long long days uh, those were $6,000 days. And, uh, you know, I, was, I enjoyed the ensemble. I enjoyed working with them. And um, Paramount was, was, was very kind to us. And uh, it, it was a good time. However, uh, midway through the season, the, the makeup went right up to the edge of my eyelids. And uh, there was paint and there was color and there was texture. And at some point, Uh, a follicle became infected and um, I wasn't able to treat it because if I had surgery then I wouldn't be available for the rest of the season it would take some time to heal and so I put it off until the end of the uh, series and then I went in and had several procedures and they were unsuccessful so the result of it is I have a clogged tear duct in my left eye and a, a tear duct is the part of your skin that drains the tears from your eyes it doesn't generate tears it drains them. And my tear duct was clogged, so that meant that moisture would pool in my eye and eventually spill over the lid. And it would either look as though I was in tears, or it would dry and leave a salt stain on my face. Um, it's 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 been frustrating. Um, I, you know, it, it, it wasn't a pleasant outcome. And um, it affected um, other opportunities. So, you know, so it goes.
0: Wow. Tucker, we've got a couple of uh, listeners, uh, Warp 5 listeners, Brandon Cowles and Jeff Okonis, and they asked uh, similar questions. They asked, would you have returned to Enterprise if asked? And were there any talks about bringing you back for season four or season five?
2: Uh, there were no talks. Uh, the arc was the arc and um, they had moved on. I, I, I can't, I can't tell you for certain, but I would have returned only because Having undergone what I did um, surgically and having had so much surgery in my life, it's not one of my favorite processes, Um, you know, my eyes are pretty important to me. And um, I I, I just can't, I I can't say with any certainty that I would have jumped at the chance. But the reason would not have been for any any adverse or any negative feelings about the uh, creative people. It would have been simply my own physical well-being.
0: Well, thank you for mentioning the I because a listener, Dan Lecky, actually asked about your health and like how you had recovered from that. So you actually already covered that. And I didn't realize that you had had complications from it. So thank you so much for telling
3: us about that. So before we move on to some other aspects of your career, so when you were hired for – enterprise did you know that it was going to be a season-long arc when they hired you and that you would be back for a certain amount of episodes that season or were you originally just hired for the one episode and then they decided to keep going with your character
2: well uh i i suspect i can't really remember frankly uh i remember meeting with brannon and uh, they were they were very kind and affirming and um letting me know that um they look forward to working with me but um I don't think they pulled that arc out of their ass. I think you know when they when they've slated the season, the Zindi were an integral part of that season. So I suspect I knew going in that this was going to be recurrent.
3: One of your passions and one of your hobbies that you that you uh, partake in nowadays is singing and singing blues music. Can you tell us how you b- became involved with singing and doing and doing music?
2: It's something that I've always loved. Music uh, when I was a child. Uh, I lived in Greece for two years, and I became the first uh, person of color to study the violin at the Odeon in, Th- in Salonika, Thessaloniki. Uh, I was very good. Uh, I was talented, but I, I was, a, you know, I was a kid, and um, I had been the other for much of my younger life. And uh, the idea of going to school wearing glasses and carrying a violin case seemed to me to be a guarantee to get your butt kicked twice a week. And uh, I, you know, I, I wanted to be popular and I wanted to be you know secure socially and all of that so when I returned to the states uh, I was in the high school orchestra and I gravitated to the bass but when I got to college at the time this was in the early 60s um, people uh, folk music was very big in America when I went to Germany to go to college uh, for my uh, sophomore year I I took two albums and one was Bob Dylan and one was Joan Baez and, um, I didn't play the, uh, the guitar, but, um, you know, I noticed that hmm, guys play guitars and girls seem to gather that works for me. And so over time I would watch other people. I, I didn't have any formal training. I play entirely by ear. Um, but I began to, um, I got a guitar, I began to play it, uh, I began to jam with other guys. When I came back to the States I continued, um, I, uh, did study at the, um, uh, the Guitar Institute in New York um, with Eddie Simons. Um, It was Paul Simon's brother, Eddie Simon, created the Guitar Study Institute. And um, I learned about tablature, and I learned about uh, pattern picking. And um, when I came to California, there were people here that I could go and work with. Um, And uh, I met over the years some of the the great, great performers of uh, this genre. I I fell in love with the blues. And I got to meet uh, Mississippi John Hurt and Johnny Shines and uh, Robert Junior Robert Lockwood and uh, other great bluesmen. I, I was fascinated by that. And this was music that had not received a whole lot of support from the black community. If you remember the dynamic, the social dynamic of those times, we were in the midst of civil rights. We were in the midst of integration. We were in the midst of fighting for voting rights, uh, the end of segregation. And um, this music to many people of color Reflected a time when they they weren't proud of it, and so very few young black kids were gravitating to the blues uh it was It was huge in Europe, and the people that trained me were generally people who were white uh, who fell in love with the genre and wanted to break it down scientifically and so they imparted what they knew to me uh, and I was very grateful for that today. you can go on youtube you can see countless videos of how to do things. You'll see people of color, you'll see people who are white, you'll see people who are Asian, but they share a love of this American music. And um, so I, I enjoy playing it. And there's another aspect. Um, I was an up and coming folk singer here in uh, in, in America. And um, then in Vietnam, I was shot through the throat and uh, my vocal cords, my vocal cord was paralyzed, which um, means that I could only whisper i couldn't I couldn't make a tone, but I, there's a wonderful human tendency to compensate. and over time, I learned how to speak again. and this music um, was a, I could assume a persona that seemed to have some credibility. I was not your basic Broadway baritone with a beautiful baritone voice. Uh, I had uh, to 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 make. I had to find ways to project air through my instrument, which was compromised, but would allow me to make sound. So obviously I can speak. uh, I can project my voice. I do it. I don't know how I do it, but the body does. It understands it. And uh, if I allow myself to assume that blues man persona, then uh, I'm comfortable in that. And while it's not as mellifluous as Johnny Mathis, um, it communicates.
0: All right, so Tucker, thank you so much for coming on Warp Five. Uh, what are some latest projects that you're working on, or that you've just finished up that we our listeners can be looking out for?
2: Well, um, Bob Odenkirk does a series here called Better Call Saul, which is which is just wonderful.
3: Yes, um,
2: <laughs> it's just it's a spinoff from uh, Breaking Bad, and um, he and I had met years ago in one of his projects, and uh, he had contacted me and asked if I'd be involved with his film. Uh, Girlfriend's Day, which premiered on Netflix on Valentine's Day, so that was that was great fun. And um, I the the kind of projects I am drawn to nowadays are much smaller projects, um, the work of emerging artists. Uh, I did a film called Embers a couple of years ago, which has been acknowledged as um, one of the very fine science fiction efforts of the past few years. And um, It is available on Hulu and Yahoo or Hulu and Netflix and all of these, you know, outlets. It's, it's called Embers. Um, it's a piece of work I'm very proud of. And these roles are the interesting roles to me. They are the roles where I get to be a human being, as it were, rather than some automaton or some authority figure who, you know, seems to have an emotional arc from A to B. I'm a, a member of rogue machine theater. Um, my group here in Los Angeles, we do rather um, impressive work. Um, my, my, I've had a great deal of fun the past 10 years. Um re- returning to my love of theater, which was really my first, uh, love. Uh, I did six plays for Joe Papp in New York city. And, um, I, a theater is the medium for the actor. There's no cutting room. There's no editing. It is live and, um, there's some wonderful performers. You are familiar with who will never set step, never set foot on the stage. Uh, it's just not a comfort level for them. But some of us absolutely love theater, and I've gotten to do some of my very best work in these recent years, which is very affirming to be. I turned 73 last Wednesday, and um, when I did um, the Sunset Limited for six months with Ron Batita and later with uh, Joe Spano at another theater. That's about as demanding a production and a character as I've ever portrayed, and so to do it as late in my life as I did it and to do it so successfully was was very affirming. I'm I'm very very happy. When I finished that six month run on uh, of the Sunset Limited, I, I sat back and I said, you know, if I never do another role ever, I'm good. I'm satisfied. This is what my teachers trained me to do, Sanford Meisner and Stella Adler. And um, I think they would be pleased, and I am pleased. So it's, it's nice to get to the, uh, the end of your, your road and, and, and be able to look back and say, yeah, that was, that was valid. That was solid. That was um, work you can take pride in. Wow.
0: So uh, you mentioned your website, your blog earlier. Uh, could, could you uh, let our listeners know how they can follow you on social media or let them know about that, your website?
2: Well, if you google me, you'll come up with any number of references um I'm certainly not hard to find if you're looking for me um my web my i, I don't visit my website as, as that actively but um I do occasionally um i i I post on Facebook probably as prolifically as anyone uh it is an interesting outlet and um I don't accept friends because friends entail you know um more and more um, input and I spend entirely too much time on it as it is these days. So I've limited my friends, but it's a public page and anyone can follow me.
0: Again, thank you so much for coming on warp five, Tucker.
2: I enjoyed it guys. Uh, be well. Uh, I hope that, um, your finished product uh, satisfies you and your fans.
1: and wear
3: So that track that you heard now exiting the interview was called mean black spider
0: that uh, I'm still, I'm just, I'm still just floored by uh, the stories that Tucker gave us, you know, like he, and the, what he did in service for the United States, it, it was just, it was very touching. And then, and then he actually dropped in that his, he, he was shot in the throat. Yeah. So he couldn't talk. But yet he could still figure out how to sing, and he ended up acting anyway. So it's just amazing. Yeah. Just amazing. Amazing, man. Um, So, Brandon, what did, what did you think about that?
3: That was, a, that was an amazing experience. I mean, I've loved watching Tucker as an actor ever since I was a teenager. I mean, I, I watched Space Above and Beyond during its first run live. And, you know, so I saw him on there. I saw him on, on Star Trek Voyager. I saw him on Star Trek Enterprise. And, you know... A lot of these genre shows that I've fallen in love with in my life, he's been a part of them, you know, X-Files, Millennium and all this wonderful stuff. So to be able to speak with him and have a chance to chat with him is just, it's pretty outstanding. And and I'm very gracious for how he opened his heart to us and and told some of those very personal stories about, you know, his injuries in the war and his, his struggles with depression and how he overcame those things. Like those are very powerful and inspiring stories And, uh, you know, I hope that people that are listening, I hope there's a few people out there who could take some inspiration from from Tucker's story.
0: Very well said, Brandon. And talking to Tucker Smallwood is not the only thing we're doing on Trek FM this week. So here's what else you may have missed elsewhere on the network.
3: Previously on Trek.FM, Warp 5.
2: Well, they decided to come out with something called the 1701 line, which is always cute. Retailers always want to do seventeen hundred and one or they make the price seventeen dollars and one cent. And that's real cute, except when you have a hundred thousand people who want a figure and you're only releasing seventeen hundred and one of that figure, you're disappointing a lot of completists.
0: Saturday morning trek.
3: And the backgrounds were actually reused later in other Filmation properties. That would be cool to see that. I, I never watched the He-Man cartoon, but I'm sure if I watched it today, I'd be gonna like,
2: oh, that's the planet from
3: yesteryear. Or yeah. Whatever episode. <laughs> Melodic Treks. So you had an individual dialogue track, an individual sound effects track, and an individual music track. If you take out the dialogue and effects, if you just mute them, you're left with the edited and potted music stem.
2: And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm.
0: Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can find us anywhere you can get your podcasts iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or you can go to our website at Trek.fm and grab the RSS link or download the MP3 file. And if you're an Apple user, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, leave us a star rating and review. That would help us increase invis- visibility for other listeners and help us grow the show. And speaking of reviews, uh, recently I actually announced the winner of our year-long anniversary uh, Re- Warp Five review contest on iTunes. Um, we ended up; the winner was Stronger Than z So, Stronger Than Z10, you shoot me a PM on Facebook or. Post in the Babel Conference or post in any of the, the Star Trek Enterprise or Star Trek Facebook groups that I post a show in. And let us know. I'd like to send you those Blu-rays any as soon as possible. Another way you can help us keep our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash FM, you'll get to see all of our goals and current milestones and just patreon is the gateway for helping trek fm out any little bit helps one dollar a month helps if all of our listeners just gave a dollar that would help our network out so much but if you jump it up to five dollars you get access to the patron zone so brandon's actually our patron zone manager so brandon let our listeners know a little bit about what's going on in the patron zone
3: well, we're getting lots of early releases for you guys on there. So uh, you can you can go to our little website called Patron.Zone. We've got some really cool exclusive content on there, some commentaries that are exclusive, some deleted scenes from episodes that are exclusive, and some wallpapers. So it's a pretty cool little place. And to get access to that, you just need to donate at the $5 a month level. And the website, again, is patreon.com slash trekfm.
0: Very good. Uh, Thank you always to my co-associate producer, Mike Morrison, and our new associate producer for Warp 5, Tim Cooper. Thank you so much, Mike and Tim. They support support Trek FM through Patreon. And that's also how Brandon and I got started. Uh, I started out, I decided that I wanted to be at the associate producer level. So that's the $25 level. And that's where I got started. And next thing you know, it comes around and they have the patrons round table. So, Brandon, what, how, how's the patrons roundtable been going?
3: It's been going really good. We've actually been getting a different host to try and host the roundtable every month. Uh, we had, uh, as of recording of this, we had Amy Nelson host the last one. Uh, we had Lee, Hutch, uh, Lee Hutchison host the January one. Ken Tripp hosted the one in December. Uh, I hosted another one in uh, in January as well. That was about Trek trivia. And uh, yeah, we got some other great new great hosts that are going to be helping along with that. Oh,
0: that's great. And every name that you just named all got started at Trek FM through Patreon.com. So listeners, if you want to get started with it, that is definitely a place to get your foot in the door and get started helping with the network. Um, I'd like to thank Tony Robinson for creating the very cool show art for our show. And thank you, Brandon, for handling the editing and publishing of Warp 5. You're very welcome. Uh, If you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trek.fm slash contact or look on the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakbike.com slash Trek FM. You can also contact us through Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. And as we mentioned earlier, the Babel conference type the Babel conference, B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook, or you can go to our website at Trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. So, Brandon, if our listeners were wanting to uh, talk to you a little bit about uh, what it's like to tap on the glass of the Zindi uh, Aquatics Aquarium, uh, how can they get in touch with you?
3: You can follow me on Twitter at Brandon uh, Every once in a while, I stick my head up in the Babel Conference. And uh, I guess those are the primary ways to find me right now. Um, I'm in the process of starting another podcast and i've got a twitter account for that if you want to follow me um i'm a big fan of alfred hitchcock and me and a couple of friends are in the planning stages of that so you could follow me on good evening pod sorry at good evening pod
0: very good that's exciting starting a new podcast very good
3: and if you'd like to get I'm crazy that's i'm <laughs> doing enough podcasting what i don't know what i'm doing what's wrong with me <laughs>
0: If you'd like to get in touch with me, listeners, you can always find me on the Babel Conference, the Trek page, listeners page on Facebook. So, Boomers, thank you for listening and join us again next time for another episode of Warp 5.